Okay, so we're back with Mike, and we're going to talk about uh, a couple more questions here. Uh, Mike, what do you see coming in the future, and how can we be ready for it? I, th- I think the biggest thing that's coming is uh, is artificial intelligence, and I'm and that's you mean like aliens. Yes, yes, it's good it, lord. That's the thing most people don't. They, they, I, I'll I'll tell you, Frank. Don't tell everybody else. Okay. but it really is aliens. Um, from outer space, that from is. From outer space, right. <laughs> outer space, inner space, it could be from anywhere. You won't even know. The, uh, the thing that, uh, I mean, it's a little self-serving because I've been working in AI for, mm-hmm. for 40 years, and people think that, you know, it's finally coming, right? And uh, the, uh, the reason I think that this is really the time. You're saying it's, it's here now. It's here now. Uh, I, I mean, I forget who said it, but there, there's a famous quote that says, the future is here, it's just not widely distributed yet. <laughs> um, I think it was uh, Gibson who said that, and uh, the, William Gibson. And I think the, uh, what that, that's really true, is that you can see it here, but it's just not accessible for everybody. And the way to be ready for it is a couple of different ways. One is to really focus on changing your processes so that, that you can make decisions faster. Now, when you say ready for it, as a business owner, you're saying ready for it. Correct. Not just your average... Your average person doesn't need to do anything to be ready for AI. Um, it just happens. It just happens. And, I mean, a lot of people are afraid of AI. You know, they're afraid that, you know, AI is going to come for their job. And the truth is, I think there's very few jobs that can be fully automated by AI. I mean, if you're a long-haul truck driver... Yeah, I think you have things to worry about because they'll be able to do self-driving trucks that can just, like, you know, find their way down the interstate. That'll that'll happen fairly soon, and they'll figure out the insurance part of all of that. But if you look at what the real story is for AI, it's not about taking everything away. It's if you get in your car, it knows how to parallel park. It can tell you when you're moving out of the lane. It can tell you when somebody's in your blind spot. Those are all AI. Can you briefly explain... For people who don't know what AI is, just yes. a, a brief explanation of what what it is. Yeah, it's just a different way of computers automating a task. So the old way of computer uh, computers automating a task, which everybody's familiar mm-hmm. with, just regular software programs. The way they work is that a programmer has written the software, and when they say they write the software, they're actually writing programming language. And what's in the programming language is instructions that tells the computer, first do this, then do that. If this happens, do this. If not, do that, right? So they're just writing these logical set of instructions that if they gave them to you to go do, you could say, oh, I see. Oh, and if it's less than 17, then we do this. Automated the process. Yeah, they're just automating something that a person could do if they had a set of instructions. AI is different because it isn't a set of instructions. What it is, Hmm. is it's a set of um, programs that can actually look for patterns. So they can see patterns that happen in data. And when they see a certain pattern, they're told to produce a certain outcome. So for example, um, when we talk about the self-driving car, if you have something that in your rear view mirror tells you someone's in your blind spot, the reason it's able to do that is not because someone wrote a software program that said, if truck next to car, that, you know, it's not like that. Right. What's happened is there's a camera, and the camera has looked at millions of different patterns of 
a truck being next to your car or another car being next to your car or a bus being so next to your car. it's eliminating all these. Yeah, and there's all these other patterns where it sees things that maybe look a little like a truck, but they're not a truck. It's actually in the rearview mirror. It's a billboard that has a truck on it that's on the other side right. of the road, right? And so it can tell because the truck isn't moving or it's moving exactly, exactly in concert mm -hmm. with the speed of your car. Well, that wouldn't be happening if it was right next to you. It would be slightly moving ahead or behind, right? It would maybe move in and out. Out a little bit right and so there's all these things that it knows about what certain patterns look like and what what you would call an anti-pattern right a pattern of nothing being there looks like and so because it's seen all that stuff now it can say you know 90% chance that's really a car in your blind spot I'm gonna turn the light on so the technology is mm -hmm. here now yep. being implemented and should people be worrying about it in a positive way or a negative way you should worry about it if you're planning not to avoid it so if you, uh, on your job, you're saying, I'm not doing any of that stuff, then you should worry about it because everybody's job is going to have some of that in it. And you need to just kind of make your peace with it. It's kind of like if you said, I'm not using computers. I'm not using a computer on your job. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. There are probably, you know, a few jobs you know, for being like a longshoreman or, you know, I don't know. There's probably a few jobs where you don't need a computer, but I don't know what they are. Right? There are not a lot of them, and most of them aren't jobs you would like to have, right? I mean, if you, no matter what job you can think of, there's some computer. I mean, a taxi driver is using a GPS system. A, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a fisherman, you are using a computer to navigate. You're using a computer to see what the weather is going to be. Um, there are so, computers so, everywhere, right? So, so some AI this, is just going to be inside right. the computer. So some of this is like they talk about disruptive technology where you're turning your average car into now a taxi. Yeah, that's right. Which, which is amazing. It is amazing. But, I mean, if you look at every job in business, there are going to be parts of it that AI can do and parts of it it can't do. Parts of it that really still require human judgment. And there's always going to be people who need to help the AI to even do the pattern recognition. So if you think, um, so the reason they call it machine learning is because there's many, many different things that the, that the machine actually gets better as you give it more patterns. So the more data you give it, the better it gets at being able to identify something because it's seen so many variations. So the reason they call it learning is because it works more like a person. Right? If I gave you the same thing to do a hundred times in a row, by the hundredth time you would be better at it than the Pretty first good time. At it, yeah. yeah. But that's not true of a regular software program. For a regular software program, it's going to do it the exact same way a hundred times As in a row. As it was programmed from the very beginning. Yeah. And and in fact if it doesn't do it the same way a hundred times in a row, that's a bug. Right, and so AI actually gets better the more data you give it, and regular programs don't. And so we've limited what we automate to things that should be done the same way every time. So if you think about how a spreadsheet works, a spreadsheet does a great job of being able to add up columns and tell right. you if some, one column's greater than another or any of those things, because they're the same every time. But has anybody used a spreadsheet to say, should I make the investment in that stock? No. no. Because you want something that has seen thousands of those decisions making good ones, and then you would say, all right, maybe I'd listen to it then. That's AI, right? Because that's doing something that it used to be a person needed to do because you wanted it to get better and, and better and, and that's better. here and now. What do yeah. you see coming in the future? What is possibly that's going to blow our minds in the future? Where do you see all this going? And it's, it seems to be happening rapidly, quicker and quicker and it quicker. Is. And you and I grew up with... We didn't grow up with Facebook. We grew up with phone book. You bet. So, so that, so, it's almost, it's almost um, shocking to 
to see what's happening with technology. It's, it's just, it is. it's evolving so rapidly. And it is scary, right? Because it, it feels it like you can't keep up with it. And so I wouldn't focus so much on what the next big thing is. What I would more focus on is to try to be a fast follower, to try to be agile, to try to have your processes be very lightweight, to be able mm -hmm. to make quick decisions, to be able to respond to things when you see them, to use data. Like the better you get your data and the more data you can collect, the better shape you're going to be in for AI because that's because AI uses all the data. The faster you can make decisions, if you can like have processes where you can get people to change what they're doing really rapidly rather than, you know, it takes six months and nine committees to figure this out, you're going to be ready to respond when data tells you to shift, right? And so I think it's more about your attitude and more about the way you set yourselves up to be kind of lightweight and nimble than it is that you are some kind of genius that will predict what happens next. You don't have to predict what happens next. All you have to do is be ready to respond, to be open-minded, to be paying attention, to be sensing what's going on around you, talking to people, mm -hmm. you know, all the kinds of things that people kind of don't think of as being computer skills. Those are the skills that you really need because those are the things that people can do that computers can't. And so let the computer keep doing more and more. Take advantage of the fact that it does more and more. Make it your servant, right? Be, you, you want to have the smartest computer there is with the best data that can tell you things that you can respond to with action as quickly as possible. That's the thing to really focus on. So <clears throat> while I'm, our crew is behind the cameras at, at Rutgers University, even us as technicians, editors, shooters, we can't believe what's happening so rapidly and so quickly. It's almost jarring how quickly things are changing. And sometimes it's unsettling where you feel overwhelmed and you, you can't keep up with it all. And uh, how am I going to ever compete against uh, the giants that are just outspending, outspending in, in their ad revenue and rising to the top in Google? So maybe if you give us a couple of basic tips to, to how to stay relevant uh, as a small business owner yeah. uh, using your, your knowledge and your marketing skills, a couple of tips that you can maybe recommend. Well, I think the first tip is to, to not worry about it so much. Because I mean, if you're a small business owner, Google isn't after you. Google thinks you're their customer, right? So mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about the giants, right? I mean, so, and if, you're, and if you're a software company and you're worried because Google's gonna crush you, it's more likely that if you do well, Google's gonna buy you, right? So I think I would first would not be so worried about all those things okay. out there. I mean, and I would be especially worry, uh, not worried about trying to keep up with everything. Um, if you think about what's gone on here, I mean, from the time I got into the computer business, Everybody's walking around these days with like, you know, some some like USB stick with eight gigabytes of memory on it. When I got into the computer business, I'm not sure there was eight gigabytes of memory on planet Earth. And and I, I looked up what the price of memory was when I started in the computer business. And if you if you um, could have amassed eight gigabytes of memory, it would have cost you twelve billion dollars. Okay? Now, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if I got that right. It might have been 12 million, right? But it, a hell of a lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> I, I can't remember if it was million or billion, but whatever. And so, and I'm actually understating that because if you add inflation, it's 19. Mm -hmm. 
And so now that thing costs like 10 bucks. And so- Or it, it's given away free at trade shows. Well, that's the thing, right? right. Because it costs 10 bucks, right. right? And so here's the thing. Human evolution was not designed for us to be able to respond to changes that quick, right? So, so if you're saying to yourself, oh, I don't know how, I can't keep up. I just feel like I'm falling behind. Well, everybody yeah. feels that way. Okay. So it's no different. It doesn't matter. There's nobody out there that's like, hey, I got this. Everybody feels the same way. And so it's more important to me not to worry about stuff like that. The more time you spend worrying about things you can't do anything about, the less time you spend actually doing things you can, you can have an effect with. Right? And so focus on what you can do. Mm -hmm. right? And the things you can do are the things we've talked about. It's Focus on giving your customers a better experience, both before they're your customers and after you're your customers. That's going to lead to loyalty. Loyalty is going to lead to repeat business. Repeat business is going to lead to recommendations, right? And, and all of that has to do with your niche. What are you best at? Like, I mean, what is your differentiation, right? Oh, you know, a lot of people, they really mess up differentiation because they think differentiation is about how we're different. It's not about that. It's not only about that, because differentiation is how you're different that will make someone buy from you as opposed to someone else. Because everybody's different. You know, I have four kids and I would tell them, hey, you know, you're unique, just like everyone else. You know, I mean, it's hard not right. to be different. Of course you're different, right? Difference isn't it, right? Differentiation means it's a difference that causes somebody to buy from you. And so if you can figure out what that is and you can start to figure out who the people are that really need that, now you've not only got some people to market to online, but you've got customers that you can then really please, and they're going to find they're going to recommend you to other people that are like them. And that's really what the way through is. And it doesn't matter whether there's artificial intelligence, whether there's artificial stupidity. It doesn't make any difference, right? Because all those things will go on, and you know, Facebook may not be around in ten years, and there'll be something else, right? I mean. Who knows what's going to happen? And, but that's, it's not important for you to predict all those things because nobody knows what's going to happen. You're in the same boat as everyone else. What you really want to do is focus on your business, your customers, and make that really work. If you do that, you're, you're going to be in good shape. The only way you can really screw up mm -hmm. is if you stop paying attention, right? If you decide, I know how this is, I know how to make my customers happy, and I'm just going to do it the same way, well, then you're going to go the way of the newspaper industry because that's what they said. They said, we're making people happy. Look, they're buying the paper, and what are they gonna do instead? They're buying the paper, we have papers, right? And uh, they didn't realize what business they were really in. They were in the, the news business, they're in the information business. I mean, you're not consuming less news than you did 15 years ago, right? But I bet Actually, you're- more. More, yes. but you're not paying for it now. Right. Right, because yeah. newspapers didn't have what you were looking for. And the truth is, when the newspapers were doing it, you weren't paying for it then either, because you were giving them a dime, and it actually cost them 50 cents to do the paper, right. and it was all advertising, right? And you so, had to wait to get it. Correct, and you were, so you were never paying for news. So people say, well, it's because news is free now. The difference between free and a dime is just not enough to have driven anybody, right? Mm -hmm. It's really the difference in the fact that I can get anything anytime I want. It can only be the thing I'm interested in. I don't have to throw it away. I don't have to wait for it to show up. I don't have to tip the paper boy. I don't have to do anything, right? All this stuff became easier for me, and I'm more interested in the news than I was then, right? But they didn't figure out how to deliver it in a way that made any sense. And the truth is that they didn't have a differentiated product. They were all just doing rip and reads off the wire services for national news. All they had was local stuff, and that's not enough for people. And uh, so they missed where their business was going. I mean, they could have been Craigslist. 
I feel the they same had way. all the customers. They, they just didn't do it. Right, they didn't realize what they had in front of them. Exactly, and so and so that's the only way you're going to get in trouble is if you just don't pay attention, you don't respond to what's going on, you don't listen to everybody. Because are you telling me that nobody told any of those people in the newspaper business what was going to happen? I don't believe it. I think they reacted like you talked about your customers reacted, where you're like, why do we need this? Why do we have to do this? I've been doing this since the year three, and don't, it's always been don't fine. Don't tell me what to do. Exactly. And so if yeah. you want to be like that, then you're just waiting for something to come along to disrupt you. But if you stay open, if you really talk to your customers, because how, how could their customers never have told them any of this? Mm. Right? So the thing is, if you pay attention to your customers, you really serve them, and you really focus on how you're different, better, and you never lose that edge. You keep making it better. You keep making it, making it something that people will choose you. You're going to be fine. That was true 30 years ago. It's still true now. It's just how you do it that may have changed a little bit. The things you need to be open to may be a little different. <laughs> That's like, oh, my God. <laughs> a lot. A lot to it. A lot to it. Okay. So, um, so Mike, tell me, how, how long have you been in the, in the marketing industry? I think it depends on how you count. Um, I, was, I first became um, a product manager at IBM. So a lot of places don't consider product part of marketing. But if you look at like the classic uh, uh, Philip Kotler marketing book mm -hmm. that was written you know, a zillion years ago, p product is one of the four Ps. So I still think that's part of marketing. So I first started doing that probably in the, in the mid 80s. And uh, so I did a lot of product marketing. Um, the, uh, I ended up uh, working at IBM.com, I think starting in 98. Um, so that's, that anybody would probably consider marketing. Um, and uh, that, that I started out doing a lot of the work because I was technical and I understood how the things worked. But what I very f quickly figured out is that the marketers at IBM really didn't understand what to do with the web um, because it wasn't like traditional marketing. It wasn't like trade shows. It wasn't like you know brochures. It wasn't like direct mail. It just didn't feel to them like it was like that. And so because I was working on that stuff, I got this opportunity to make a lot of marketing decisions, not just technical decisions. Because when you're in an area that's new, if you just have a better idea than some other people do, you end up getting the job. And so more and more my work revolved around marketing rather than, than only technology. I was always doing technical work, but um, I, I, I was really blessed to have had an opportunity to do a lot of marketing work too. So what do you feel that, that was like your most exciting projects, projects that you were really, um, you couldn't believe you got it, and you loved doing it, and it was a success. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Um, I think probably the, the first one was I was working in IBM Research, and we invented um, what became the first commercial electronic book. This was in the late 80s. This was before the web. And uh, so it was uh, an electronic book that could fit on a diskette. It could have all the pictures in it. It had this enormous compression. It has uh, the first linguistic search engine, so you could search for mouse and it would find mice because it knew it was the same word. And it worked in 33 national languages, and uh, that had all sorts of natural language processing, which is a form of AI in it. And that was the first time I really got excited 
about marketing. And uh, after um, I was the product manager to produce that product, I ended up working with the marketing team for two years, where I was flying all over the country and all over the world, um, getting people to buy this thing, showing them how it worked, explaining what the return on investment what would was be it for called? them. It was called Book Manager. So it was really Adobe Acrobat before Adobe Acrobat. Um, but uh, IBM, kind of with stealth marketing, wasn't that good at selling that kind of thing. They mm -hmm. were more, the, with IBM, the closer to the metal it was, the better they were at selling it. And this was kind of an application, and I think they right. had a little trouble figuring it out. I think it, I think it's still around, which is kind of amazing that some people are still using this. But uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun to do that. And I think the thing that happened to me after that was really going to IBM.com is just being part of that team that was really figuring out everything, right? We didn't know anything when we started um, of what we were supposed to do. I mean, uh, I remember uh, when uh, the tragedy happened in 9-11, we didn't know what to do with the website. Should we do something special? Should we just leave it alone? Right. And we ended up, and we were based in New York, so we ended up just putting up, um, you know, a picture of the twin towers burning, and just you know, told everybody you know, you know, we're sorry for you know whoever's suffering today, and uh, we got all sorts of people telling us how wonderful that was. But we didn't do it because we thought we would. People think we were wonderful. We did it because we just didn't know what else to do. We were all really sad, and we didn't, weren't sure what the right thing was to do that day. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, and and I think nowadays you probably wouldn't do something like that. Nowadays, it's you know, it's it it would feel as weird as you know, somebody closing their store because, you know, some tragedy happened. It's like, well, you know, I still got to buy stuff. I still got to go to the store. So I think the industry has changed a little bit back then, but I think uh, from back then, but I think that, uh, you know, being part of this completely new thing that there were no rules for, nobody knew what worked. And that's where we ended up doing all of the work around uh, Agile, where we were testing things, doing A-B testing, looking at analytics, changing how we did stuff and we were constantly trying to learn from our mistakes because we made so many of them and when you know it's it's trial and error and how do we how do we you know make fewer errors and try and, mm -hmm. and try and get more better results so um god there's so many questions so i'm i'm trying the, the value that i'm that i'm looking to provide the viewers is like maybe um Give them some sort of direction in 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 what they should be doing in the next year or so. So if you say, hey Frank, if you're a small business, um, you should be paying attention to these three things or these five things in in the next year or so. So I think the the things to really pay attention to is to understand who your audience is and where they are, right? So if you're whether you're a big business or a small business there are places where your audience congregates. And I think too often we just think that, you know, well, you know, they're on Google or they're on Facebook or whatever, and they probably are, but those are probably really expensive places to find your audience. Are there inexpensive places to find your audience? So for example, um, are they hanging out on some kind of message board where they're asking each other questions? Uh, is there a society or an association that they belong to? Is there a conference that they go to? Um, and, and because it doesn't all have to be online, right? I mean, I mean, if you think about um, conferences that people go to or other kinds of events, you don't just have to show up at the event and buy a booth. You could actually do what's called geofencing, 
where what you're doing is you're putting ads on social media, on search, and other places that are kind of limited to just the area where the conference is. So all the people there are seeing them on their phones, they're seeing them on their computers, and maybe you're directing them to their booth, or maybe you're not. Maybe you don't have a booth, right? But you, you still know this is a place where people are. So sometimes it can be an actual geographic place, but other times it's just a metaphorical place. It's a message board, it's a website, it's a YouTube channel, it's all sorts of things that, uh, places where people might congregate who are the kind of people you're trying to reach and what can you do to be in front of them there. And so that, those are the things I'd really be focused on is how do you know who your, who, who your tribe is, as Seth Godin would say, and how do you reach them? Right? And, that, and so a lot of that requires a lot of introspection on your part to really, really get down to what are the people that really want to buy from you. With the, the company that uh, I'm a partner in, Solo Segment, it's easy for us to say it's big companies. So we'd say, you know, they have to have over $100 million in revenue. Right. So that's simple, right? But what's harder is that there are a lot of companies that are over $100 million in revenue that aren't right for us. And we thought about this a lot, and eventually we came to the conclusion there are companies who want to invest in content and invest in their customer experience, their digital customer experience. They really think it's important. They're, they'll put money behind it because mm -hmm. they care about it. And when you have those two things, now all of a sudden you've got something that, uh, something that really starts to identify your market. And now you can start asking, where do these people go? Well, maybe they show up at, uh, at, uh, con at Content Marketing World or MarTech West or th those types of events. There are all sorts of YouTube channels they look at. There are all sorts of, they go to uh, e-consultancy and read all their materials. You know, they go to Marketing <laughs> Sherpa. They go, right? And so there's all sorts of places those people might go. And so those are now places where we want to be on the lookout for them and have a presence. Um, you're in front of our camera a lot. Uh, and uh, you are somebody who is a, uh, an instructor at Rutgers University. And, uh, and, the, and, and the reason why I'm having you here is to talk about uh, the value of um, basically online education because we as a production company will record you and of course Rutgers uses that to sell the product to, to their students. So how does online education really work? So um, I think the first thing that's important about online education is that it allows people who need kind of more of a, of a snackable environment to be able to just take very quick uh, pieces of education. I mean, you can see this with YouTube videos. You can see this with like Linda courses. There's all sorts of ways that you can just get a very quick lesson online. Um, I think the other thing, that the second thing I think is really important about online education is that people who um, don't have English as their native language, they can watch them over and over again to really start to, to understand the material in a way that they wouldn't be able to get from in person. And I think the third thing is that online education has the potential to be less expensive. You don't have to pay for a venue. Um, you don't have to pay for an instructor to travel or for their time, right? Because once they record them, you can run that thing over and over and over again. So there's potential for it to be a little bit lower cost. Excellent. Is online education something only universities do? No. In fact, I think universities probably do it less than other places. I see it used more with uh, training companies and with uh, corporations where they're really, really moving to online. A lot of that's for cost reasons, but some of it is because the, of the other reasons that I mentioned. So I think 
universities, in my opinion, are a little bit late to the party. I mean, we work with Rutgers. They're not late to the party. They've been doing this for a while. But if I look around at a lot of the other universities I see, I see many of them could be taking advantage of online approaches that really aren't. And I think one of the reasons they haven't, because they haven't really thought about applying the kinds of, uh, of uh, learning design to online that they do offline, right? I mean, a lot of the times, um, colleges, for as good a job as they do, and smart people that they hire, they are more experts than they are experts at instruction. Um, so they're experts in their subject, but not really expert teachers. And I think that you can get away with that in an in-person situation where if they don't do a really good job explaining something, you can ask a question, you can go up to them afterwards and talk to them, and you can keep talking to them and interact with them until you start to get it. Online, it's a lot more important that the learning design be done well and that the people doing it are not only experts in being able to convey the information, but they really know how to explain things so that people do understand it the first time. So the ones that get it, how are they how are they leveraging this medium today the ones that are using it how do they how do they leverage it how do they turn uh, an idea into a revenue stream i think that uh, a lot of it is not different from how they do in-person classes um, and in fact if you look at what rutgers has done with you guys one of the things they do is they just film in-person classes and so that's one way to do it there are other um, rutgers also has times where they bring people into the studio and do that and I think either way of getting the material is fine they both have their advantages and disadvantages but I think what's really important is to focus on how you make how you edit them into small enough chunks that people's attention can be retained online because if you try and put you know an hour and a half video up there you, you, people are just not going to be able to handle and it. That's exactly the challenge we have as a production company knowing where to make those breaks those bite-sized pieces where it's digestible it's very important and leading into the next segment and element that keeps them watching it all the way through and Correct. getting value out of it. And so I think breaking it up so that there are exercises that the, per that the person does individually quizzes, tests, those types of things, ways of interacting that, uh, and, and also ways of asking questions. Um, some online learning is live, you know, almost like a webinar. And so right. you can ask questions, but, the, for, but most of it's recorded. And for the recorded stuff, there has to be a learning management system that allows people to post a question so that the instructor can answer them. And it could have been two years since the instructor recorded that video, but you still need to be paying that instructor to be fielding those questions. And so if you really think about this as, as something that needs learning design, it needs to be focused on the same way that you would focus on any other type of really important material, that's really the way to focus, that's really the way to go. And I think that because this thing is something that you want to live for a long time. It's not like a class that's given live that if, you know, the instructor gets five questions, they realize they didn't explain something well, and the next time they teach it, they'll do a better job. You need to get a lot of those kinks worked out before you want to go record. you got to get done right the first time. Yeah. So where do you see the future of this form of education, and where does, it, where does, where does video fit in? I think that there's a, a, the, a few things that I've seen that are really exciting is uh, is actually holograms, um, where someone is live teaching the class, but they're not where you are. And you, but you can actually physically see a 3D image. And so there's obviously a lot of video technology that's going into that, as well as all sorts of other technology on the other side to recreate that. And so those are the kinds of things that, you, that you're starting to see mm -hmm. um, for, uh, 
uh, that's kind of a real change in technology. Um, the, the thing that, um, that I think uh, is more likely to be that the, what we focus on, though, isn't that kind of whiz-bang technology. It's more people getting comfortable with what really works in this medium. I think if you went, I think if you look at where we are with online courses, I think we're in the same place we were with web pages in 2003, mm -hmm. which everybody knew how to put a web page up, but they weren't all very good. And it took a while for the, us to kind of figure out that there are certain things that are really easier for people to understand. There was certain standardization that happened. I mean, if you looked at a website in 2003, good luck finding where the search box was. Right. Now every site you go to, it's in the upper right-hand corner, and it's right next to where you log in. And so, so there's certain things we've kind of figured out. If we put them all in the same place and everybody just does that, it becomes easier. I think those things will start to happen with online courses too. I don't know if they're as simple as those things, but I'm using those as examples where I think we're still in the early days of knowing what works and what doesn't. And so you see a wide variation of techniques that are being tried. And I think some of them are going to pan out to work better than others. So would you say this is this type of learning is it's still in its infancy stage? Because my, qu think, my yeah. question here is, how much growth potential do you see in this sector? Oh, and, enormous! And I you're mean, saying oh, it's just beginning. Oh, it's just beginning. I mean, if you, th I mean, if you're following like the flipped classroom movement, um, you know, think about what a potential that is, right? So, for those of you not familiar with it, the flipped classroom is uh, where teachers actually show up in person to answer questions and supervise homework and the lectures have been recorded and the kids watch them outside of school. So the lecture, watching the lecture becomes the homework. And so that, and so if you think about that, right, so you can think about that for like elementary schools, but think about it more for things like corporate training, for college, right? Th think about what's going on here, right? So if you could record all of that stuff and then you really use that, that classic either in person or online live time to really be able to ask questions of the expert. And this is the way Rutgers does those online classes. I think that makes a ton of sense, right? Because it's, it's leveraging the, the time of the experts a lot better, but it's also leveraging the time of the students because you can get away with a lot less time mm -hmm. of, being, uh, of being synchronized. Uh, where the, you and the instructor have to be available at the same time than you are when you're look, having all these long lectures that you have to listen to. And I think that that's really a huge opportunity for video. That's a big thing, and I think you're going to see that really take over in the next 10 years, that that's kind of the normal way people do this. You know, everybody's complaining about the cost of education. Well, here's a way to really bring it down. Right? If you just recorded all these kinds of things, you wouldn't even you would don't even necessarily need the instructor who recorded the material to be the one ask, answering the questions. There are folks that I work with um, in the National Speaker Association who are doing jobs for clients where they record all of their material and then they train people who go to the corporations and they're the ones who are facilitators and they're answering the questions and if there's a question they can't answer then they refer it back to the expert but this is a way of disseminating really deep expert material all over the place right in, in more places than that a person could ever travel to and and interact with people over and so this is really what you're gonna see this is how the cost of education starts to come down 
This is also how you start to do lifelong education. If you look at where we've been, we've had businesses where, you, where if you learned a trade when you were 20, you could retire from that trade when you were 70, right? But that's not really what the way the world is anymore. The job that I do now wasn't invented when I was coming out of college, and the same for you, right? And that's so, correct. And so, and so as we see that, that pace is going to change even more. Things are going to change even faster, and so the need to be able to have on-the-spot learning of just the things that you need to go or go after, those are really what's going to happen. I think education is going to become so ubiquitous that we're not even thinking about it as an industry anymore. You know, it's kind of asking, you know, are spreadsheets an industry? You know, I mean, maybe, maybe, but I mean, they're really just this tool that we use constantly in just about any kind of situation you can imagine, even in our home life. And, and video education, I think, is the same way, is that there's going to be so much of it that you're not even going to think of it as an industry anymore. You're going to think of it as just a tool to help people grow their skills in whatever it is they're trying to grow. So, Mike, you as a, uh, an instructor at Rutgers University, I'm behind the camera, you're in front of the camera. How can corporations benefit from, from, from something like this? I think a lot of them are starting to realize that the same problems that colleges have are the same ones that they have, where they have a workforce that they need to train. There are things that are changing very rapidly. And one of the ways that online can really help them is they need access to world-class experts, but they can't necessarily afford to pay the fees that it costs them to show up and spend several days at their site. And so, and they certainly can't do it to ship them all over the world multiple times. They can't run a worldwide business that way. And so by just contracting once with them to record a set of materials that they can then use in all sorts of places, and then maybe have the instructor on call when there are questions. I mean, those are, those are ways that corporations are leveraging this technology the same way that colleges are. And I think that uh, if, that that there's so many specific things that corporations need that they really struggle with how they're going to keep their workforce up to date as things change, especially in technology. I, I think this is something that more and more of them are turning towards.